In the book, All I Really Need to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten, author Robert L. Fulgham writes, All I really need to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. Wisdom was not at the top of the graduate school mountain, but there in the sand pile at Sunday school. And these are the things I learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. When you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. Now, those are all good things to know and good things to put in practice in our lives, aren't they? And they cover a large part of life. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, lessons from kindergarten don't cover all that we need to know. In fact, they don't teach us the most important thing. Today we're continuing our sermon series out of Philippians, and we come to chapter 3. And in this passage, Paul tells us that the most important thing that we need to know is actually a somebody, Jesus Christ. You know, growing up, I was blessed to have a number of great and godly spiritual influences in my life. My parents, um, Sunday school teachers, pastors, grandparents, um, and I'm grateful for them all. Um, perhaps the person I think of the most when I think of spiritual influences, though, would be my mom's mother. Um, I think I've mentioned her before, my little grandma. She was 4'10", and she weighed 85 pounds. She was very big in my eyes, though. She had a soft heart. She had a sweet spirit. There was something pure about her heart. She was sincere. She was earnest. She had the, just the ring of trustworthiness. And even though she had some really difficult things in her life, I never really saw her down. She was full of joy and peace. And even though she loved her family dearly, and we all as grandkids thought we were her favorite, of course, it came through very clearly that her greatest love was Jesus Christ. The the way she talked about him, the way she shared about him, the way she encouraged us, you could tell it was real, and, and I remember wanting to have that kind of faith. Maybe you've been blessed with somebody like that in your life. A grandparent or teacher, parents, a friend, a sibling, a spouse, maybe a child. Somebody who just seems to bubble over with joy. Someone who talks about Jesus in a way that you just know that it's, that it's real. It's not just information about Jesus, but it's, it's a personal, intimate relationship. I mean, wouldn't it be great if, if we all had that kind of relationship with Christ? Well, the Bible tells us that we can The Bible tells us that we are created in God's image in a way to relate to him like the best of friends who know each other so well that they can finish each other's sentences or they know what the other person is going to say or do before they say it or do it. There are powerful descriptions of God's desire for us to know him throughout all of the Bible, beginning in Genesis, where God walks with Adam and Eve before the fall. They knew him personally. And even after sin enters the world and God's people reject him time and again in the scriptures, still God's desire to know us personally in a friendship burns through strong and clear. For example, in Jeremiah 31, God says this, The time is coming 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is the covenant I will make, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. God has created us to know him, not just to know about him, but to, to know him. Like we know our best friends, like we know our, our, our family, our neighbors, but even in a deeper, more intimate way. Like my, my little grandma did, like the person who popped into your head when I talked about her did. And if God wants us to know him in this way, then it must be possible, right? He would not put the desire in us to know him in that way if it couldn't happen. But how does that happen? How do we go deeper in our relationship with Christ? The Apostle Paul pondered that question and he wrote the answer to his friends at the church in Philippi 2,000 years ago. Let me reread a few of the verses that we're going to hone in on today. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is, from, and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul writes about knowing Christ twice in this passage. First, in verse 8, where he says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And then again in verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And then we often want to stop right there, but Paul continues. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. So the, the keys to, to knowing Christ better in these, is found in these verses. Before we jump into that a little bit, though, let's do a little bit of retreat to the beginning of chapter 3 and look at the first three verses. Now, remember who Paul is writing to here. The church in Philippi is a relatively young church, 10, maybe 20 years old at most. And it's filled with primarily non-Jewish Greek believers. Paul loves these people, but he's sitting under house arrest in Rome several days travel away. They've been faithful to him, but most importantly, they've been faithful to Christ. But Paul is concerned because there's a danger, a spiritual danger in their midst. Something or someone wants to steal their joy, their peace, and add a burden, a spiritual burden to them, which would make it much more difficult to know Christ in the way that we've been talking about. Listen to verses 1 through 3. Finally, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. So Paul's saying, I'm about to tell you something you already know, but I'm going to do it because it's important to safeguard your faith. Verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. 
So what, is, what does this have to do with knowing Christ better? What is Paul talking about? Dogs, emulators of the flesh, circumcision? Well, well hang with me for a second. Maybe this illustration will help you. Uh, I'm a dad, as many of you know, father of three. I love being a dad. I'm not a perfect dad. And I don't have perfect kids, but they're great. They're a blessing to me. And, and one of the joys is getting to know them and, and watch them grow up and develop into young men and, and a young woman. Uh, I hope they know I'll do my best to care for them. I hope they know that I love them no matter what. But what if somebody comes along and puts in their mind this idea? Your dad loves you. But you need to do something to secure his love. You need to do something to, to guarantee your relationship with him. You need to do something visible. You need to get a big tattoo that says dad on your arm. You do that, and I guarantee your relationship will always be solid. He'll always love you. Now, that would be a silly thing, wouldn't it? I mean, for somebody to, to suggest to somebody else's kids. And what kind of father would require that? I mean, I'd never have my kids tattoo dad on their arm. It would be sir dad on their arm. But, well, as weird as it may sound, there was something like this going on in the church during Paul's day. He, he wasn't very happy about it. There, there was a group of, this, of Jewish believers, not the majority of them, but a very vocal minority of, of believers who were preaching and teaching something that posed a huge threat to the church and to the spiritual well-being of the Christians in Philippi. They were called Judaizers, and what they were teaching was that if you wanted to be accepted by God the Father... If you wanted to know his love was secure and be saved and be secure in your relationship, then you had to do something physical. Not a tattoo on your arm, but you had to be circumcised. Now, now circumcision in the Old Testament was, a, was a, a sign, a mark of being a part of God's chosen people. The people around Israel didn't do practice circumcision, but God's people did. Sort of like today... Um, a sign or a mark of being a part of God's people would be baptism when we publicly identify our life with Christ. But over time, circumcision, these, these the believers began to miss the point and began to believe and teach that you had to be circumcised not only to please God, but that you needed to do that another in, in order to secure relationship with him, in order to be righteous. And when some of these people began to bring this belief with them into the church, and began to teach and insist that if you wanted to be saved, you had to believe in Jesus and you had to be circumcised. What they were teaching was, in other words, faith in Christ alone was not enough to be saved. You had to do something else. And that's why Paul uses such strong language here. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, what does Paul mean in verse 3? For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. What does he mean by this? Well, he's saying that when we believe in Jesus, when we're born again, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and when we glory in Christ, in Him alone, not in our own good deeds and good works, that is what marks us is as God's people. That's all that's needed to mark us as God's people. That is what makes us right with God. Not circumcision and certainly nothing else that we do. We are saved by faith and faith alone. Martin Luther, the great uh, reformer, took a stand on this point and nearly was martyred because of it. 
Faith alone, sola fide. We are saved only by faith in Christ. That's the core of what it means to be a believer. Other religions teach us what we need to do to earn salvation. Christianity tells us that Christ has done it for us. That's the foundation upon which our faith is to rest. And unless we understand that and believe it, then our trust is going to move more and more into our good works. Being a good or moral person. Going to church, being religious. Giving to charity and mission. And if we trust in those things, there will be an anchor around our neck which will drag us down spiritually and will change the very nature of our relationship with God. To the point where we end up with more of a business relationship with Christ as opposed to a friendship. And Paul says in verse 8, All the things I did before to earn my righteousness, being circumcised, being a good Jew, a good person, crossing my T's, dotting my I's, it's all garbage to me. Because it kept me from knowing Jesus as my Savior. So if we want to know Christ in a personal, intimate way, if we want to have joy and peace in our relationship with Him, then we, we must have Paul's perspective here. You see, when you know that there's nothing you can do to earn God's love and acceptance, but that God has done it for you through Christ, well, if, if you truly understand that and believe it, well, I can't imagine a better source of joy. It means we don't have to be insecure. We don't have to wonder if we've done enough. We don't have to doubt if we're good enough. Because of Jesus' death for our sin, He has done enough and He's good enough for you and for me. That's an important key to knowing Christ and having the joy that Paul writes about so passionately. The second key is found in verses 10 through 11. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. Paul claims that if we are to know Christ deeply, we must experience the power that comes to us through the resurrection. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, He proved He was the Son of God. And that His Spirit could give you and I the power to live life as He did when He walked the earth. The very power that raised Him from the dead we have available to us through the Holy Spirit. That means that we can, we can be strengthened in the midst of difficult situations. We can persevere during trials. We can triumph through awful circumstances because of the power that is available to all who trust in Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to say, in a sense, why would, he want, why would Paul want to experience this so powerfully? One, he loves Jesus Christ. But two, he no doubt experienced this in his own life. And that, that is this. We experience God most powerfully in the midst of our pain. Our greatest spiritual growth typically happens when? When we endure situations and persevere through suffering, through the presence and power of Christ. C.S. Lewis said this, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our suffering. Isn't that true? We have the greatest advances in our spiritual life when we face something that hurts us deeply and badly. When we come to the end of our rope, emotionally or physically, the loss of someone we love. 
betrayal by somebody close to us, severe injustice, physical pain. It's during those times that we most often and powerfully experience God's presence and promises and power in our lives. I know that's been true in my life. Whether it's been discouragement about my spiritual growth, whether it's been challenges in ministry, whether it's been through the loss of our firstborn, stillborn, whether it's been through other situations in my life, I have found God's power and presence most powerfully when I'm going through suffering. My guess is that there are many of you here today who could share the same experience. I think of somebody like Roberta Huseman. We just buried her. Uh, we just celebrated her life on Thursday. She died on Monday. Wonderful Christian lady. Over the past several years, her body was de- de- deteriorating, decaying because of a neurological condition. And yet, she was probably the most positive person that I knew. Full of encouragement, a prayer warrior, would send me numerous written letters, um, sharing scripture and prayers. Um, I just was reminded of her again today. Uh, she knew I had a cough, and a couple of weeks ago, she, she gave me these special cough drops with zinc and silver and all sorts of good stuff. And I was sucking on one earlier this morning to help me. Um, and I think the joy and the peace that she had came from the fact that in the midst of her decaying physical health, she found God's presence and power to be so overwhelming. And she found to be true what Paul so passionately prayed for. I want to know the power of the resurrection. I want to share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Some of you here today are going through suffering. Perhaps you're experiencing physical pain or disease. Maybe you're facing your own mortality. Perhaps you've been rejected by a spouse or a child. Maybe you've lost a job that you poured your heart into. Regardless of what it might be, I encourage you to lean into Christ. Remember that he also suffered such things. And let his power, the power of the resurrection, bring you closer to the Father. And let him grow you spiritually. Let him reveal himself to you. That you, like Paul, will know him better and better and better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have created us for a friendship, a relationship with you that is personal. Lord, we, uh, we ask that you would help us to grow in our dependency upon you. Help us to grow in our passion for you. Help us, like Paul, to want to know you more than anything else. To consider all the other accomplishments in life in comparison to be really nothing. Help us, Lord Jesus, to, in the midst of our own pain and suffering, to experience your power, your promises, and your presence. We thank you, Lord, for your friendship. We thank you for your love. We offer ourselves to you. Amen. Would you sing?